This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, May Pock from tinyhandsonline.com revealed how she studies her customers using Facebook. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that's built a $3 million business working just four hours a day. In this episode, you'll learn why you should drive your non-English speaking customers to Amazon, why they redo their website from scratch every single year, why you should buy Facebook ads in Europe rather than in the U.S., Today, I'm joined by Pat LaHoo from BottleCutting.com. BottleCutting is a do-it-yourself glassware company. It was started in 2012 and based out of Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, how's it going? Good. So tell us a little more about your store and what are the uh, most popular products that you sell? Uh, so BottleCutting.com, um, we've basically, every product we sell is, is all in that same space, which is bottle cutting. But the main product we sell is the uh, Kinkajou bottle cutter, which I invented back in 2012. Very cool. So tell the audience a little more about what is like what is bottle cutting? Like what is the purpose of um, cutting bottles? So bottle cutting is uh, nothing new. It's been around, uh, you know, it was pretty big in the 70s. It kind of died out uh, and it's kind of making a comeback now. I think it's more popular now than maybe it was in the 70s because the bottles uh, these days are a lot nicer. And there's also, um, you know, while we recycle things, upcycling seems to be the new recycling. So instead of recycling something, we use it for something else. And I think the third thing that's kind of pushing it forward is I don't think there's ever been a time in history when uh, people love their brands as much as they do now. So if you're into Heineken, you might want Heineken glasses. Or if you're into some craft brewery that's down the street, you know, that makes great bottles, you might want to reuse them for something else. Very cool. So how did you know that this was a, I guess, a growing market or a market where you felt comfortable starting a business? Because, you know, you said that this was popular, I guess, in the 70s. And did you recognize like the trend coming back? Like, what did you see about the marketplace that made you want to get into this business? So uh, my story is probably a little backwards. Uh, It really wasn't a plan that started out, you know, I'm going to get into the bottle cutting space. Um, How it actually all started was um, I've always been somewhat of an entrepreneur and I had just left a venture. It was like on a Friday and during that weekend, this was three years ago, I had just discovered Kickstarter. Back then uh, it was kind of just blooming. The Pebble Watch had just been funded. Mm -hmm. It's kind of on all the blogs and I was just really excited about this new platform. And by Monday, um, you know, a couple days after discovering, I decided that's it. I'm... uh, I'm a big junkie for new experiences and I wanted to do a Kickstarter, but I really had no idea what I was going to do. I spent that day kind of, uh, you know, surfing the internet, trying to come up with ideas. I came up with a few. Two of them would have required months and months of R&D and were pretty complicated. And the third was an idea for a bottle cutter. I had seen a YouTube video about uh, someone cutting a bottle with a piece of string and acetone and lighting it on fire. And I thought, okay, that's pretty cool, but, you know, we could probably do better than that. And it was kind of a roller coaster. I'm, uh, when I get passionate about something, I just kind of, I'm like a dog. I just don't let it go. <laughs> and uh, 20 days later, after having coming, up, coming up with the idea, I was on Kickstarter. I had, you know, applied for a patent, come up with a prototype, filmed a video. It was kind of a really quick process. Um, I threw it up on Kickstarter and uh, 30 days later, I had raised $80,000 for the Kinkajou bottle cutter. No, very cool. Yeah, and I, I would definitely want to get into the uh, the Kickstarter experience in a second. So you came up with this a bunch of ideas, or at least a few ideas, and then it sounded like you had, a, I guess, a list of criteria that you wanted to follow either maybe on paper or in your head to narrow it down to bottle cutting. So how do, can, you, can you talk to us a little about the criteria that you were working with and how you came up with them? So for me, um, when I did the Kickstarter, it really wasn't, I wasn't focused on starting a business. I was more focused on, you know, just having a Kickstarter experience. I thought it was a really cool platform. It's something I want to participate in. So my criteria was more about 
how fast can I do a Kickstarter? And my other idea is literally had software involved, hardware, and it would have just taken a long time. Whereas the bottle cutter, like I said, from the day I had the idea to the day I was on Kickstarter with my pitch video uh, was only 20 days. So that was the main criteria is how fast can I get on there? Very cool. Yeah, 20 days is definitely fast. And uh, that's I definitely want to hear more about what you did in those 20 days. So um, before we get there, though, you said it sounded like you have a pretty rich history of entrepreneurial ventures. You had just left one before you started the bottle cutting Kickstarter campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience? Like, you know, what other kind of projects or businesses have you worked with or launched in the past? Sure. Um, so I started uh, down the entrepreneur path uh, in my early 20s. Um, I had been working in the um, computer industry, and while it was great, I kind of felt you know it'd be great to try something on my own. And I, I ventured off into the um, back then ever-growing um, internet service provider industry, so the ISP industry. I started my first ISP. It went on for a couple of years, merged with a much larger ISP. We ran that for five, six years, and then eventually sold that to a much larger ISP. Uh, from there, I ended up actually going back to school. Um, I did an MBA. Uh, I figured if I was going to be in business, I should maybe get a bit of education in it. Um, and then from there, I, I hopped around a few companies. Um, and the last venture I was involved in was a software company. Uh, we were developing apps at the time for Android, BlackBerry, and Apple. And while it was a growing uh, market, it was a very competitive market, and I just felt it just it wasn't a good fit for me, so I got out of that, and then that's when I kind of stumbled on Kickstarter. Yeah, so you you had a computer industry experience, online experience, software. So these are all you know pretty. I wouldn't say they're not tangible, but you know when you're moving into a physical kind of product space, was that a hard transition for you? Like, what kind of things did you have to I guess learn for the first time when you made that transition into selling physical products? Yeah, so it was a pretty steep learning curve. Um, I was pretty naive about the whole thing, building products. I was, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I'll get, I'll get a mold made here or in the U S I'll order third party parts. I'll assemble this stuff in my garage and just, you know, ship out of my house and very small thinking. And that was my plan. Um, but while I was on Kickstarter, uh, I was fortunate to have, uh, the timing of it all. When I was on there, several manufacturers from China reached out. And the first one, you know, spoke no English at all, so that wasn't going to work. The second one um, spoke some English, but really didn't understand it. It was, it was kind of, there was obviously a communication issue. And then the third um, person who reached out actually was American, who had been doing business in China for over a decade at the time. Uh, so communication wasn't an issue, and he basically gave me a quick lesson on the things I was doing and I was crazy to try and build this stuff even in, in North America with the prices or having, you know, the mindset that I, I needed to touch every piece and ship it out myself. So he he kind of put me in the in the right direction really early on, which really saved everything because I I would have I would have probably crumbled on the amount of work I would have had to do if I physically had to touch every one of these things that I sold. Yeah, no. So when you during that time where you were thinking about launching a Kickstarter campaign and you came up with this idea did this kind of product exist before or this, was this a completely, totally different, I guess, a brand new invention? So there were other bottle cutters on the market. It was a very, um, it was kind of a space. These bottle cutters that were still around were the original ones from the 70s. And I felt like there was really no branding to them. They weren't, they weren't doing any sort of marketing that I could see. Uh, most of them didn't even have websites. So it was a pretty non-competitive space. Uh, which kind of gave me an edge. I came out with a brand, a cool name, a, a device that was very different than what was actually around in the 70s. And um, it allowed me, I think, to grab a pretty significant market share of that industry. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I think you know when someone's out there thinking about uh, what kind of product, what kind of business to start, do you think this is a... Not, I want to say scalable, but like a repeatable process where you look for industries that have a existing product already, but there's like no clear leader, no clear leader that's branding or marketing well, and then coming in and taking over that space. Is that like a pretty repeatable process? Um, so I think it is, but the trick is obviously stumbling upon these industries. I, I mm -hmm. stumbled upon this by accident. Um, I think actively going out and trying to find these industries might be tough because, you know, bottle cutting is a pretty niche thing. 
if I was actively looking for something like that, would I have stumbled upon that? Probably not. Mm. Um, but I'm a big believer in, you know, um, don't compete if you don't have to. Uh, it's, you know, competition's great and all, but it's also tough on business. If you can find a space that's, you know, kind of where no one's playing, it's a great place to start. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Kickstarter campaign. So you've launched two, um, but we'll start with the first one, which was the Kinkajou Bottle Cutter uh, with a goal of $75,000 and up raising $81,000 from 1,087 backers. So did it come down to the wire? Because, you know, most Kickstarter campaigns, you raise a good amount of money, but it just barely crossed that goal line. Did you, was it, did it come down to the wire at the end of the day? Yeah, it did. So back then, um, Kickstarter was very new and very few people knew about it compared to now these days. And like I said, I, when I launched this, I was pretty naive about the whole thing. I put it on there and then the, literally in the first few weeks, I got no pledges. And I was like, okay, well, how does this work? I spent a lot of time um, contacting blogs and just generating traffic. And I, I remember there was days I would contact 20, 30 blogs with, you know, not cookie cutter emails, but all personal emails. And maybe every day one of them would pick it up. But every time one would pick it up, it would generate, you know, another three, four thousand dollars in pledges. So it, it definitely took the 30 days to get to the finish line. Yeah, that's one of the uh, issues I've heard from other Kickstarter campaign creators is that early traction is the hardest where, you know, when you don't have any sales early on, nobody really wants to pay attention to you because they think that it's not going to be a worthwhile product or it might not come to market because there's not that early traction. So I think your approach made a lot of sense. You know, start reaching out to these publications and getting some eyeballs onto the project itself. And you said that you made a, you really personalized with those emails rather than, yeah, you know, because, you know, these blogs get inundated. I figure these copy paste emails aren't just going to work. So I took the time, but that, it's a very different space now. I, I feel like back then the blogs might have been getting emails, but they must be getting inundated now. Yeah, uh, there's just you know the the scale of the amount of projects live on Kickstarter is is ten times or even maybe a hundred times what it was. And Kickstarter since that since then has opened up in all sorts of countries, so it's a whole different beast when it comes to you know getting your word out there for your Kickstarter. Right. So what's the process that you follow when you when you want to personalize emails and you know, not make it, not necessarily a chore, but like, it's really hard to do so many right in a given day. So do you have a process in, in, when you when you sit down? and? So, I, you know, I would just, I would really focus on blogs I felt where my product would fit. You know, I'm a big fan of a lot of blogs and I felt like there's, it'd be great to get on those blogs, but it really doesn't fit. So I, I focused on a lot of the ones that it fit. And then a lot of times I would find an independent writer for that, you know, who might write for that blog and reach out to them directly. Um, yeah, and, and it was, I would say it's definitely, it was easier back then because I think uh, these blogs, Kickstarter was new, it was exciting. A lot of blogs, you know, it was, if they hadn't covered Kickstarter before, it was a good opportunity mm -hmm. for them to start. Cool. So you, you know, went on these, uh, found a bunch of blogs that you thought your product would fit on, and then you looked for the individual authors or contributors onto that blog. And then what did you, you find their email address or Twitter? Like, what? How did you reach out to them? What did you say to them? Uh, email, Twitter, some on LinkedIn. Uh, just kind of used every resource I had. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And how did you personalize it? Like, what were you saying to to make sure that they knew that it was personalized? So, you know, if it was a writer, I would say, uh, you know, I would reference one of their previous articles, uh, things like that. So at least there would be an opening line that made sense and it wasn't cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. They could tell this person actually knows who I am or things like that. Yeah. And even it's funny, you know, like you're saying how people get inundated with emails today, like even personalization has become so frequently used that you start to notice like, three years ago I think that that definitely worked even today you start recognizing people at least for me even I start recognizing when people take that approach of mentioning an article or mentioning in my example a podcast episode that that they had heard previously so it's a I think it's a format that definitely makes sense and I think um, the more personalized you can make it the better even today you know try even harder to make it uh, even more personalized so, so yeah, I want to talk about the um, the first twenty days, the twenty days that you spent before launching a Kickstarter. So, what did you do like during that time? Because you had to come up with the product, you had to create all the marketing material for the video, the copy on the Kickstarter campaign. How did you spend your time? So it was uh, it was crazy. <laughs> um, you know, I was build. I had to. It took me five six days to mull through multiple prototypes, 
once I felt I had a good idea, I, I literally uh, built one out of Lego wheels. That's kind of how it started. And then I needed to get um, something a little bit more substantial for the video, um, for the pitch video. So I uh, you know, learned, uh, I had no idea how to use CAD, but within a day I was able to get enough CAD skills to you know, pull out a decent 3D model. I sent it to a 3D printer. Three days later I had it you know, FedEx to my door, stuck my Lego wheels in it. Uh, I must have cut two, three hundred bottles, uh, finished those bottles, sanded them, you know, and then started working on a pitch video. And then during that whole time, I was trying to work out like what's this thing actually going to cost because I needed to get a realistic uh, number to ask. So the reason I asked for 75 grand, which is quite a bit of money is, you know, um, I had no intention of going to China, you know, 20 days is not, I had never dealt with China. The whole thing felt really daunting. So I was just going to deal with someone in the U S and that's kind of where uh, the price point was. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, I filmed the pitch video. I, uh, I got a hold of a patent lawyer, made sure that I, you know, I was protected, and just kind of launched it. Yeah, and I, I think nowadays Kickstarter is even more strict with uh, making sure that the creator has everything figured out, you know, beforehand. And I think you were saying that you hadn't nailed down the manufacturing yet by the time that you launched. Like, was that something you worried about, like not being ready if the campaign does to see, like, what do you do next? So back then, there really wasn't this sentiment that projects failed because it was fairly new but these days there's obviously a sentiment that not all projects succeed so the whole notion of you know putting all your ducks in a row while it was important really wasn't it wasn't a big focus of kickstarter you know they, they didn't really have this they didn't focus so much on due diligence at the time because for the majority of the projects back then i think you know they did work mm-hmm. um but for me, I, I again because I was naive. You know, I think I had given maybe three months to uh, as a completion date, but I, I missed it by I think it, it took me additional um, almost two and a half, maybe even three months after that. So I overshot my deadline by three months simply because I the whole thing uh, I underestimated, and I think a lot of people do underestimate what it actually takes to build a product, especially overseas. Mm, makes sense. So the campaign ended, you had uh, $81,000 uh, ready to go from over a thousand backers. What did you uh, hit the ground running do? Like, what did you do next? So the, the funny thing is I really, so I had raised this money and again, I still wasn't in a position where I was thinking I was going to start a business mm-hmm. with this. This was more about, I'm going to fulfill these, uh, these orders and I'm gonna just going to go get another job. And I did. I was working almost part time on this, you know, fulfilling these orders because I went and got another job and I worked at that job for uh, almost four months. But during the time um, that I was at this new position, I kept getting emails every day from people saying things like, hey, I'm, I saw your Kickstarter, but I missed it. I wonder if I could pre-order it. And it kind of, they just were, I was being inundated with them. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll take pre-orders for sure. You know, I'll make a little bit of extra money. So I opened up a Shopify store, nothing, um, nothing too fancy, just put it up there. And in the time my Kickstarter ended to the time I actually shipped, I took another quarter million dollars worth of pre-orders. Wow. So now I had raised over 300 grand and really no one had physically touched this thing yet. So I thought, okay, well, there's, obviously there is a business here. Um, and uh, so I quit that other job and, and went full time on, on bottle cutting. Wow, <laughs> quarter million dollars after just raising eighty one thousand. That that's crazy. How long did that? What was that period of time that you raised? Five months. And the crazy thing is, like, I did zero advertising to try. So when you're doing a Kickstarter, they give you stats in the background of how many people viewed your video and, and kind of all sorts of you know analytics. And I remember when I ended my Kickstarter. I think my video views were at maybe 40,000 for the entire campaign. But by the time I actually sold my first Kinkajou, my video views on my Kickstarter were upwards of 130,000. So there was obviously, and it, it was, it was just kind of a sweet time for Kickstarter because it was so new that people would spend time inside Kickstarter seeing what else people had done. And it kept, you know, so I think they were more, uh, likely to, uh, look for other projects that may, you know, may have missed their chance, but still wanted to get in on them. 
So a lot of your sales are just like straight up driven from your Kickstarter uh, page, even though the campaign had already ended. Yeah, and, and it, it was frustrating too because I back then, and I think it's still like this, Kickstarter um, locks your page at the end of the campaign. You can't go back and make changes. And I had this intention of changing the, the main screen to saying things like, hey, if you missed my Kickstarter, you can reach me here. Just an easy way for people to reach me. And But I didn't know that Kickstarter locked the page. So my campaign ended and I came to put up this new slide and the page was locked on me. And it was pretty frustrating because I knew my these video views were happening. And even the emails that I got, I feel like if I had had some type of messaging on there, I would have actually probably raised a lot more. Yeah. I think now they let you have that uh, buy now or shop now button. Yeah, there's, it, it's, it's become much friendlier. Yeah, definitely. Sure. I'm sure this makes a huge difference because you don't want people to come into a page and wanting to buy, but then not knowing where to go next. Yeah, it can't find you. Yeah, exactly. So the manufacturing. So once you got the, the funds, the uh, $81,000, um, you found an um, English-speaking or American out in China that, that you wanted to work with. How did you get all the manufacturing set up? So uh, working with him, he had engineers on staff, and he took my my pretty crude CAD drawings and turned them into something that um, you know could actually be put through a, a manufacturing process. And he he works, you know, he's twelve hours time difference for me, so we would work at night via Skype, uh, and every day we would kind of push the project forward, and you know, um, just uh, by December of that year. We had products that were on their way and selling. Awesome. So, what was the uh, I guess supply chain like? They manufactured it. Did they ship it to to you or logistics company? Yeah. So, um, my my guy in China basically um, said, "Look, if you're if you're planning on touching every one of these things, you're going to drive yourself nuts. You, you can't do this. It's not scalable." Um, so he talked me into going to find a logistics company in the U.S. So now. You know, uh, everything's manufactured in Asia. It's put in on containers, brought over by boat, and it's uh, my menu. My uh, logistics company is uh, in Atlanta, so it's, it's sometimes depending which coast I land on, but basically makes its way to Atlanta, and it's it's somewhat automatic. You know, while we're having this conversation, if if I sell a product, I, I really have to do nothing. It just kind of happens. Very cool. So after this uh, Kinkajou bottle cutter, I think about a year later, you launch another Kickstarter campaign. This time, setting your goal lower to fifteen thousand dollars, but ended up raising almost the same amount of money, seventy six thousand dollars from nine hundred eighty one backers. So you returned back to Kickstarter. Did you? I guess what was the reasoning behind that? Um, so it just, it worked so great the first time, like, you know, I thought, let's try it again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it worked, but you know, it's always easier to do a second or a third or a fourth Kickstarter, especially if you, you delivered on your first, because you, you can go back to your backers. And then if, if they had a good experience with you, they, and they like the space, there's a good chance they're going to, um, you know, support the next Kickstarter. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So do you have like the emails from people that, uh, or that uh, signed up or pre-ordered or uh, backed the campaign the first time, and could you just email them? Yes, when you, when you fill out, uh, so when you finish a Kickstarter, you know, you send out your customer survey, and that's when you capture everybody's email. And, there, and then, and, and I, I don't think you know this, but I actually ended up doing a third Kickstarter, and it's not linked. You probably didn't see it on my account, but it's it, there's another account on Kickstarter where I did a third bottle cutting project. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's not linked. Tell us more about that. How much? It was a smaller one. It was more of a, even more of a niche product. It was for uh, converting bottles into pendant lights. And it was called uh, the Firefly LED Pendant Light Kit. And that one raised uh, 21000 Awesome. So you know, between the second campaign and the third campaign, like, were there things that you learned from that very first one or maybe even the second one that you knew you had to either do again for the next, the subsequent campaigns or you had to make sure that you did right for the subsequent campaigns? So one of the things, um, it's kind of, there's definitely this, for me, I feel it's a chicken and egg thing where you, when you're doing your Kickstarter, you want to present your best foot forward. So you want, you know, it's great to present a prototype, but that prototype really needs to be almost done. Because I feel like you have so little, you get one shot at someone watching your video and if they're not completely wowed or, you know, they'll they'll just move on to the next video. But a lot of times it's, it's hard to get that finished, polished product um, without the Kickstarter funds. 
So there's definitely, you know, it's hard to do one without the other, but um, I do a lot of mentoring for Kickstarter projects. And I always tell people, like, don't launch until you're absolutely ready and always put your best foot forward. Mm. Yeah, that's an important uh, point that I want to talk about. You you said that don't launch until you're absolutely ready. And then there's also, I guess, the other side of this or the um, the opposite of it, which is like, you know, you should be launching before you're ready. So I guess, what do you think that you need to have in, in lined up that you definitely need to have ready before launching? What are some things that you can kind of figure out along the way? Well, if, if it's a product, um, you know, the product's got to be, it's got to be 90% complete, I feel. Otherwise, because what's happened is Kickstarters turn into this place where it's no longer, while there's still people in their garage tinkering, it's turned into this big money, big engineering firms, mm. big companies mm-hmm. like Pebble, you know, putting out high-end finished products. So if you're going to compete against them and you, you know, you, you've got something with duct tape on it, it's, um, it's a little tough sell. That makes sense. So the, the market is a lot more competitive because there's a lot more established and successful businesses yeah. coming in. There, there are people out there that have done, you know, dozens of Kickstarters and they've upped their game every single time. And now these products, while maybe they're not quite Apple products, but they're, they're starting to look like them. Makes sense. So what about promotion? Because I know the first time you did it, you launched the very first campaign you launched and nothing happened you know, for the first uh, couple of weeks. Um, the second and third campaigns, did you approach it differently with, when it comes to promotion? No, I did, uh, I did the exact same thing, but I noticed that by the third campaign, um, I, I think we got one blog pickup. I felt it was just so saturated. So the only thing we, our biggest asset was our, you know, not only people who had um, contributed to our previous Kickstarter campaigns, but also every product we've ever sold, we have lists of those people. So uh, once you're you know established and you have a mailing list, it's it's just a little easier to get going. Mm, so did you do you find now that if you were to launch on Kickstarter that you had to bring your own customers and audience, and you can't really rely on pitching to PR? So I, I think um, it's obviously the easier route to bring your own audience. Otherwise. You know, I feel like every time you see a Kickstarter that's raised a million dollars and it just looks like it happened overnight, I feel that there's a good chance that they probably spent, you know, a hundred or 200 grand in marketing. It, you know, Facebook and all these different mediums now, it's, it's, it's such a competitive space that it'd be hard to believe that you were able to do something like that without, you know, that back engine pushing it. Makes sense. So I want to talk about your, I guess, your marketing now because I know that Kickstarter was definitely a big driver for you, the traffic that came from there. But other outside of Kickstarter, what other ways have you found that works well for you to market and drive traffic to your to your bottlecutting.com? So uh, our main um, place we market is Facebook. And we, we've been doing it for about three years now. And we, we spent um, significant funds in Facebook over the last three years and while I feel like it still works, it's definitely, it didn't work as a good three, uh, three years ago, it, it was just, it was a gold mine. You know, every dollar you'd put into Facebook, you'd get $10 back. Uh, but it's also become very competitive in Facebook too now. So Facebook ads, you know, the prices have gone way up and it's, it's, it's still a tough, it's tougher go, but it still works for us. So we're, that's basically our still our main focus. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your strategy for Facebook ads. So how do you, what, what, what is the, the, I guess, the campaign setup? Like what kind of um, ads are you running? Like how do you figure out what should go in the ad itself? So we're always testing. Um, we're, one of the things that we, we try to do is we always try and uh, touch base with our, our audience, you know, a few times a week. So we have ongoing things like, you know, bottle of the week where we highlight a new bottle that we've cut and finished you know, we'll push that out through Instagram and Twitter, but mainly through Facebook. Uh, we do candle of the week because now we're selling candles, uh, candle making kits. And uh, we're also big on, you know, always adding new products to our lineup. So we, we launch, we always launch two to three new products a year. And so those always give us new traction with customers. And when we do, um, we're, every year, I feel like we're upping our game. You know, the website we redo, we redo our website every single year from scratch, and we're, we're always doing new videos. And every time we do it, you know, we get a bit better at it. It gets a little bit more professional. Um, so we're we're doing that. And then for Facebook ads, 
it, you know, we, we've, we've tried them all. We, we run whatever works and when it no longer works, we kind of readjust and uh, try something new. So this uh, bottle and can of the week uh, approach, I think this is going to be interesting because I think other uh, store owners out there can probably do something similar. So you are featuring one of your products and then you're just running ads with that product's photos. Like how are you um, promoting that, that uh, bottle of the week? Yeah. So for, for our space, you know, while people might like the bottle cutter, it's not really what they're interested in. They're interested in the finished products. So, um, you know, we, we take the time, we, we grab bottles from all over the world. We cut them, we finish them, and, and we feature them every week. So if you were to go to our Instagram page, you would see like hundreds of bottles that we've cut and finished. Um, and these bottles are obviously not for sale, right? These are just the end results. Yeah, of so we, we've, never sold a, we've never sold a, a you know a piece of glass. It's, that's not our business. Our business is selling the tools to create these things. Mm-hmm. So how do you, is it just you posting the content like organically or are you boosting? How do you actually spend money on Facebook uh, to drive traffic? So we do, um, we used to do a lot of boosting of posts, but we feel it's it's only great when, you know, we'll do it at Christmas or we'll do it, Father's Day is a big time for us, so we'll, you know, maybe we'll boost posts around then. But we'll, we just got ads running every single day and I think right now our current spend is, um, I think it's about $1,500 a day U.S. in Facebook. And that'll fluctuate. That's, that's kind of like our, our low points. This is a slow time of year for us. Uh, once we get uh, closer to Christmas, you know, we'll rub that up. I think our, uh, the most we've ever spent in one day was $12,000. Wow. So that's, that's amazing. So you don't have to you know, go into specific details, but how do you figure out how to target those ads? So uh, targeting, it's, it's, it's always a challenge. You know, you, um, I think we're doing what everybody does. You, you take your customer list, you upload it to Facebook, they create lookalike audiences, and then you target those. And, um, but as you, the more you do this, and, and once you start spending the amount of money we've spent, it, it becomes tougher and tougher because you do run out of audiences. In the beginning, the audiences, you know, you, know, you might think an audience of 30 million is great, and you'll be spending you'll be targeting them for a long time. But once you start spending a couple grand a day, you know, you might hit three, 400,000 of those every day. So it doesn't take long to burn through that 30 million. Part of our other strategy too is, um, while we have our store, uh, we've also jumped on amazon.com and this year we've jumped on all the Amazons in Europe. Um, so, um, what I'm finding is uh, doing Facebook advertising in other countries other than Canada and the U S uh, because it's not as saturated as it is here, uh, the price points are a lot better out there. And I see more effectiveness in those countries, more reminiscent of what I used to see three years ago in, in the U.S. Mm, very cool. So if you are targeting um, non-U.S. countries, is there a different strategy that you have to take when you are uh, you know, marketing to Europe? Um, so we, we don't... Um, right now we're marketing to... The UK is, is kind of our, 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 our big um, marketing push in Europe. So right now, it's, it's pretty simple. Everything's in English still. Uh, Italy and France are our, our next targets. And we haven't quite decided yet if we're going to translate that because our site uh, currently isn't um, in, in French. It's, all mm-hmm. in English. I mean, it's, it's not in these other languages, only in English. Uh, the other thing that's kind of a little bit different, uh, because... You know, we, we've had sales on bottlecutting.com from Europe, but it, it's kind of difficult for a customer to, you know, spend $50 on a product and then have to pay another $40 in shipping to send mm-hmm. it to the UK. And then it gets there and there's a 20% VAT and it just, it, it's kind of a hard sell. So when we do Facebook ads in um, Europe, we direct them directly to our Amazon page, which is not ideal because we have no way of really tracking how effective each ad is other than we see an increase in sales. And um, Amazon will take care of the translation? Uh, so, yeah. So Amazon um, recently changed things in Europe where it used to be you had to deal with uh, every site. You know, you, you would have to open up. If you want to do Amazon FBA, you had to ship product to Spain, to Germany, to Italy, to France, to the UK. But they've kind of no one was doing it because it was too difficult. So now if you send all your products to Amazon UK, you can connect all the other Amazons. Now, your 
um, ads, your, your Amazon page will still be in English, but I feel like these countries are used to seeing that when mm. shopping on Amazon. Yeah, that's true because all the buttons and layouts are all the same anyway. It's pretty easy to know how to purchase. That makes that's a really good, great point. Uh, so, getting on Amazon, what was that process like? How did you? I think it's a uh, marketing, a marketplace that a lot of uh, store owners out there are thinking about expanding into. Like, what are some of the pros and cons of uh, being on Amazon? I feel like Mark uh, Amazon is uh, is a necessary evil. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's such a big space; it can't be avoided. But it's also not uh, an easy space to deal with. Um, the, the fees are fairly high. But to give you an example, we weren't on Amazon for the first year and a half, and then we decided, okay, you know what, we're going to jump on Amazon.com. And then within um, a few months, we were selling $50,000 a month on Amazon. And we really wow. didn't do much. It was What we started noticing was when we do Facebook ads and we drive traffic to bottlecutting.com, there's definitely, while we can't measure it, there's definitely people out there who feel more comfortable buying from Amazon. You know, it might be something they do every other day and it's a no-brainer for them. So every time we boost ads or we, we, we spend more on Facebook, our Amazon sales go up. Um, so it, while we get sales on our own site, Amazon also benefits as well. Wow, that's that's a that's a great point, and that's amazing how much of a difference it made just from being on there. So what was the process like? If someone out there wants to get on Amazon today, like what's involved? So there's, um, there's two models for Amazon. One is the FBA model where you send your inventory to Amazon. Uh, in that model there, you know, while there's still some headaches, Amazon does all the work. They ship it for you, everything. You really have to do nothing. Uh, the second one is where you fulfill your own orders. And luckily, the fulfillment house that I used in the U.S., um, was already integrated into Amazon. So it was kind of, um, you know, it just, it was easy. We had to flick a few switches, but what happens very quickly is Amazon has to have the most, the strictest of rules when it comes to how fast your order goes out, how, mm-hmm. you know, when a, when a customer sends you uh, an email request or any kind of questions, you have like 24 hours to answer that. If you don't, you get penalized and it, it ripples down the road. So when you, well, now I have a whole new respect when I see sellers with a five, you know, a five rating, which is the highest you can get. They're working at it every day. Ours is always hovering like 4.9 and 5.0. And it's, we, we spend a lot of effort making sure it stays there because I think not only does it give um, customers a sense of uh, you know, security that it's actually you know, things are going to work when they order it, mm-hmm. uh, but it also Amazon has these buy boxes where they won't promote you if you're not, you, don't, you, know, you won't make the buy box if you don't have this score and so they, they kind of keep you on your A, your A game for sure. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. So you also mentioned that uh, you redo your website every single year from scratch, which is, uh, which is amazing and crazy, it seems, at the same time, doing the, bring on such a big project once a year. So what, what's that like? How do, you, how do you just start another, not start another store, but like build your store, your website from scratch every year? So I feel uh, with this space, you know, everything needs to be fresh all the time. And if someone visited our store last year and came back a year later and it was still the same, it's not that they would discourage, it would discourage them. I just feel that if it was updated, it would kind of give them a sense of look, look, this thing is actually moving. You know, it's something real. Um, So one thing we haven't talked about and I can touch base on is I run a very uh, lean ship. You know, I run this out of my kitchen. Uh, I have myself and I have two contractors that help me. Uh, and that's it. We, we run a lean ship. When it comes to website development, uh, I farm that out to a contractor out in the West Coast. When, I, when it comes to ad design or branding, I farm that out to an artist in Colorado. Um, I'm a big believer in you know farming out the skills that you're not amazing at. Mm-hmm. Even if you're pretty good, odds are you can, you can farm it out at a better cost and get better results. And so what do you, what do you, uh, how do you know what you should keep in-house? I used to work, so kind of a bit of a backstory here. In in all my other entrepreneur ventures, I worked a lot. You know, 68 hours, 60, 80 hours a week was a normal week. And when I launched this business, I realized that there was a better way. And that's um, 
if you're working, once the business is set up and, you know, I spend a lot of time and money on automation, um, I would rather have a business that turns, you know, X amount of profit, but that also gives me, you know, a work week of 20 hours versus, you know, that incremental increase in profit, but having to work, mm. you know, 40, 50 hours. So we, we've actually turned down a lot of opportunities that, you know, would have made things complicated. We've been approached by uh, companies who repped Walmart and we turned it down just because the headaches and the margins, the whole thing seemed like a horrible deal, even though, you know, if you sell a million, you'll do pretty great, but it, it just didn't seem worth the headache. Uh, so I, I would rather run um, a tight ship. Maybe the business is a little smaller. Profit margins are a little higher and uh, a lot less headaches and I sleep better at night. That's awesome. And this is just based on your experience from having to work those 60, 70 yeah, hour weeks. There's, there's no point. I feel like as I'm, you know, I'm 41 now and I'm like, what's the point of working all those hours, you know, mm -hmm. best years of your life. So now, now I'm more into, uh, I have a great routine. Uh, I meet with my contractors a few times a week and they, they have their own responsibilities. They just fill me in on those. And I, it allows me to focus on other products and, you know, I, I plan on launching many more businesses just like this one. Awesome. So what, what is your day to day like then if you, you know, try to turn down anything that gives you too much of a headache and then outsource or um, farm out a lot of the tasks that, uh, that, you know, that you don't feel like is your core competency? Like what do you spend your days doing? So my, my work day consists, um, I start at about 11 a.m. Um, and I finish around uh, 2.30. So I keep it short. And then um, a few times a week, I will touch base with uh, Asia, which is 12-hour difference. So that's, you know, that usually happens 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Um, yeah, and then what it does, it, it, it just frees up uh, my time to, to come up with new ideas. And, and it's worked. We're, we're, uh, we've been working on two other types of businesses outside of the bottle cutting space. And I, I plan on doing a new Kickstarter, hopefully uh, in August, once all the prototyping is done. Yeah, you're probably, of all the entrepreneurs I've spoken to, over 100 entrepreneurs, you're probably the one that's closest to that four-hour work week uh, dream that everyone talks I about. I've tried it. It's a great book. Um, <laughs> I've tried it. I think four hours is just not enough for me, no. what I need to do. Um, four hours I, a day sounds I, like works for you. The thing is, I, you know, I, I love being an entrepreneur. I love this space. So I don't mind spending 20 hours. Some weeks I, some weeks I do spend more, but... I, I actually enjoy it. So if I only had four hours to spend in it, I, I'd probably I'd probably miss it. No, yeah, definitely. I think um, the reason why a lot of entrepreneurs get into this space is because they do like, you know, building something and working on something and working long term on 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 something. You know, whether it be a business or a project, and um, it's kind of a gift and a curse that way. It's a battle that you have to go on inside your head. Do I want to keep on working or do I want to, you know? try to create more of a lifestyle for myself. Yeah, you got to love this space. I feel like so many people think, oh, I'm going to get into this and, you know, it's going to make all this money and I won't have to do anything. And while that might happen sometimes, that's definitely not the norm. Makes sense. You end up, work, you end up working a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, listeners out there might be thinking about how they want to either start a business like yours or create a lifestyle business like yours. Maybe they already have a business and want to get to this stage. How do you get started with, um, you know, reaching this stage where you are able to outsource and, you know, automate things? Like, where do you begin? Like, what do you look at in your business to determine what you can trim out? So, I think... Um a cup. So I do a lot of mentoring in this space, and I get this question asked almost every time I mentor someone. And I think what I, the thing I tell everybody is, while you might think you need to sell a million units of something, you know, to earn out a living, the truth is you don't. You know, selling you know ten thousand of something might completely change your life, especially when you're manufacturing in Asia and you're selling direct. You know you might be in a position where you have a four to 500% margin. So you might only need to sell five a day, you know, to support your lifestyle. And, you know, come Christmas when you sell you know, 200 a day, that funds the rest of your year. So I, I would say um, some, some people think they need to come up with the next iPhone um, because that's, you know, that's the only way to make it. I, I think you come up with a small product I, I really believe that whatever product or space you're going to get into, it needs to be a passion. 
because in the beginning you are going to spend a lot of time in this space. And if it's a space you don't even like, um, you know, I've must've mentored, uh, well over a hundred people now and only maybe 20, maybe even 15% of them actually get to the Kickstarter stage. A lot of them just lose interest in it. Wow. There's lots of energy in the beginning to get something going. They lose interest. Um, it kind of gets boring and it, it, be, it sort of feels like work and they don't like it. But if it's something you're passionate about, if it's a space you love, then you don't mind spending, you know, that needed time in the beginning. So I think that's probably the most important thing is whatever space you're getting into, make sure you're passionate about it. Yeah, this is a really important point about the the passion things. I think, you know, a lot of us or a lot of entrepreneurs hear this um, not necessarily phrase, but they hear that they need to be passionate about about it. But what if you're like, how do you know if you're actually passionate about something or you're just interested in it? And is there a difference in your eyes? So there's probably a difference. Um, I'm sure there is. It might be hard to, to figure out if that word lies. But one of the things I tell people when I mentor them is, look, if, you, if, if you're serious about this project, um, you need to touch it every day. Seven days a week, you need to move. I always give the analogy of you know, pushing this boulder up a hill. If you're not at least holding that boulder back or pushing it up an inch and you do that for a couple of days where you haven't taught, touched your product or thought about it, I think it's already rolling back on you. And mm. it, it's such an uphill battle in the beginning. And, and it's not that it's, it's, it's hard work. It's just it's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of like late nights and you might be tired. And, and I think that's where the difference becomes and do you like it or, or is it a passion? You know, when, when, when you're tired and it's sunny outside and you just go to hang out with your friends, but you stay inside and you work in the garage, I think that's when it, you can tell it's a passion. Mm-hmm. So were you passionate about, you know, bottle cutting or is it you're passionate about launching businesses? Like what, what was your passion? Yeah, so I never really, it wasn't about bottle cutting. I'm always, I'm passionate about business, mm. just entrepreneurship and, and the whole process. So that, that kind of drives me. I see. So you don't necessarily have to be, I mean, I guess you should be at least interested in the products you're selling, but if you're just passionate about building a business in general, is that, would you consider that enough fuel to, to, I guess enough of a reason to get started? Yeah, I, I feel definitely, but I don't know if you really know that unless you've, you know, you've been through the trenches with the mm-hmm. business before. You might think you're passionate about a business, but if you've never done it, I don't know if you really are. Right. So I guess you just have to kind of get started and see. You get started and, you know, you'll, you'll find out quick if, if it just kind of disappears from your, you know, your top of mind awareness. All of a sudden you haven't thought about your, this idea in, in a month. Well, odds are it's probably going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, share whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, how, how successful is the business today? You know, you launched this three years ago, raised a uh, ton of money, and then pre-sales and everything. How successful is the business today? So um, last year we did uh, over three million in sales, and um, this year we're out, we're trending towards four to five million. Awesome. Yeah. Great stuff. So, you know, I think, uh, outsourcing was a big thing for you to get, to get, uh, into this, um, more of a sustainable business for, at least for your lifestyle. Do you also depend on any tools or applications to help uh, run the business? So, uh, you know, uh, mailing lists through MailChimp, I think is, is a necessity. You, you, uh, while I don't think there's anything that works as well as you know sending an email to someone, and you don't want to spam your your customers, but uh, keeping them, you know, making sure you're always in their, their top of mind. We might send out uh, four or five emails a month, and it doesn't. I think that's probably a good number depending on your space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, like Victoria's Secret, they they send out emails every day, but people don't seem to mind, so um, they can do that. So it all depends on your space, I think. Um, in the, in the Shopify platform, uh, there's a couple apps that we use that work really well. One is, um, there's a product upsell app that it's, it kind of blows my mind. We, you know, we put this on a few years ago and it's just one of these apps that as you're checking out, it says, Hey, how about adding this to your cart? Um, and since we've added that, um, 14% of everybody who's ever gone through our system has purchased that item. Wow. You know, and that's accounted, I think it was over, uh, I think to date that app has generated a quarter million dollars in sales. And that's it's amazing. kind of odd. Yeah. I never thought, you know, that it really worked, but obviously it does. So that, I think anyone who doesn't have that, that's definitely, uh, that's a low hanging fruit they can throw on there. 
abandoned carts, you know, is something that everybody talks about. I don't know what the industry average is, but ours is um, is fairly low. Like I think in a month we might, I think I went back and looked last month, we had 300 abandoned carts and we were able to recover 104 of them. Wow. So um, we don't, I feel like, we, it's either because we're, we're, we're sending the right type of traffic to our site or there's something on our site that is keeping someone interested enough. So if they actually make it to the cart, there's a good chance, you know, um, they're serious about purchasing. Those are, those are probably the biggest things. Cool. So you mentioned a couple of times about your mentoring um, program. Uh, what, tell us a little more about it. Like, what is it? Uh, who is it? I guess what kind of business or what kind of people would it, would it make the most sense for? So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, karma. And when uh, this, this thing happened to me, you know, this business, this whole bottle cutting thing has literally changed my life. Um, and so not just financially, but in so many ways. So I'm a big believer in giving back. And one of the things I feel like the best place I can give back is uh, through helping people through their own journey like this. I ended up, I actually did a TED talk about this. Um, there's a TEDx. If you just Google my name and TEDx, you'll see it'll come up. It's called uh, the 20 days that changed my life. And um, in that talk, I talk about mentoring and, and basically I'll mentor anybody who I can't mentor everybody, but uh, on our bottle cutting site, um, under the more link, you're going to, there's a place that says entrepreneurial mentoring. And if anybody mm -hmm. wants, you know, to touch base, I, I usually Skype with them, spend an hour with them. I, I try to schedule at least one or two a week. And, uh, I've met people from all over the world. Some people have, have done nothing and other people have gone on to, I have a friend who used to work at Best Buy and he's become a, a close friend now and he's got a million dollar business now. Wow. So, um, you know, this stuff does happen. Awesome. So what, what, what are the other plans you have for the, uh, the remainder of this year? Like what are some goals that you want to hit with uh, bottle cutting? So we're, we've already launched, um, like I said, we try to launch a couple products every year. Um, we've already launched our candle kits, which uh, we just launched a few months ago. And um, in August, September, we're launching something called Kinkajou Projects which is uh, just a whole set of different types of products that just are add-ons to our, the whole bottle cutting space. And come August uh, or come July is when we, we normally start looking at our, our website redesign. So we, we start typically beginning of July and we'll have it up and running by, um, you know, mid-September. So uh, come July, we'll, we'll, we'll look at a whole new rebranding and get that going. Very cool. So thanks so much, Pat. So bottlecutting.com, B-O-T-T-L-E-C-U-T-T-I-N-G.com is a website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out, they want to stay in touch with you or follow up with what you're up to? Um, so if you, um, you know, we have a blog on uh, bottlecutting.com. Uh, I feel like it's probably the best place where we post everything that's up and coming. And uh, if you join the newsletter that's on bottlecutting.com, uh, you'll definitely stay in the know. We plan on launching uh, a whole new product in August, which is in uh, a whole other space. So we'll be announcing that shortly. And if you're on that list, you'll, you'll be notified. Very cool. Thanks so much, Pat. No problem. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.